So uh, this is the point in the service that we're going to open up God's Word, and we are looking at Palm Sunday this morning. We are going to be looking at Mark 11 uh, in a moment. And this is the second last uh, preach in our series, Encounters with Jesus. So we've been looking uh, at moments where Jesus has met people, what Jesus has done, what that has meant for uh, the people that he's met. And as I was preparing this morning uh, for this morning, preparing this morning, I hope not, as I was preparing for this morning, I was, I was really excited. I, I've been really excited chewing over these verses. Uh, and I, I felt God brooding really intentionally over this word uh, this morning, that this is going to draw people into a place of seeing God in a, a bigger way, in a bigger view. So uh, Palm Sunday is recounted in all of uh, the Gospels. And it's the week in the run-up to Jesus' death. Passover is about to begin. Now, Passover uh, was a, a massive celebration. People would come together and they would spend time with their family and friends. They would also pay taxes. They would also exchange livestock. And this passage is so rich that we're going to look at. And uh, I want to look at a bit further what was happening with Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. And uh, first of all, this a couple of verses. It's, it's very, very deliberate uh, from God, and it reminds us of God's plan coming to fruition. It's detailed, it's deliberate, and it's fulfilling lots of what was spoken about in the Old Testament. So lots of Old Testament prophecies, uh, that being prophets in the Old Testament that foretold what was going to happen, his entry into Jerusalem. So God knows exactly what he is doing. He knows exactly what he is doing. In verse 2 that we're about to read, it says, Go into the village ahead of you. You will find a colt tied there. And it has parallels to the prophecy in Zechariah 9, verse 9. God has a plan. For saving the world, God has a plan, and it's Jesus. And as we journey the Palm Sunday journey this morning, we can know and trust God's plan. There may be some of us this morning thinking, What's, what's going on? Where am I headed? We can trust God's timing, God's sovereignty, and his love for us this morning. And we can trust in Jesus as he has faced the unthinkable. He has faced the gruesome death on a cross for us. He is for us, and that journey is so we don't have to fear. So I want to look at what he was revealing and what he was challenging us to. And there's two points Unfortunately, my USB stick has broken, so you'll have to jot them on your phone. Uh, it won't be behind me, unfortunately. Two things. I want to look at, there's a revelation on accessibility. There's a revelation about accessibility in this passage. And secondly, there's a challenge on activity. That's the two things that I want to unpack uh, this morning. But before we read God's words, I'd love to pray. Let's pray before uh, we read God's word. Jesus, we want to declare as we read your word that you are enough. And this journey that we are going to unpack today and next week on Easter Sunday, we want to remember that you did it for us. You did it for love. Help us remember and live in light of that. We place before you right now, Father God, our hopes, our struggles, our doubts, our fears, our anger our disappointment, and we come to your feet. And we just say, come and be with us, God. You are so welcome in this space. We desire to know you deeper this morning. So we ask, do what only you can do, Lord. 
Amen. Amen. So, uh, just quickly on the run-up to this passage, we see Jesus doing amazing miracles, teaching into kingdom living. Opposition is rife. There's people that don't like what he's doing. And what he is modeling is totally against what uh, the culture is saying at that time, against laws, traditions, the ways of doing things. And it's leading to his arrest and his eventual death on a cross. So, uh, chapter 11 for this encounter moment. Let's read. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord needs it, and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street. Tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that coat? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the coat to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves but it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, is it not written My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. But you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look. The fig tree you cursed has withered. Amen. Amen. So I want to look at first this revelation of accessibility. And there's, uh, a, there's two parts to this that I want to unpack, two different parts in this passage. Now, I, I don't know if you read in the news this week a story, and this is the first lines of the headline. Before they have learned to read and write or add and subtract, there is one skill that seemingly all toddlers have mastered, creating tech disasters. So the minute I read this article, I was hooked. I was like, I need to read more. And I was given a big amen to that one uh, because it wasn't so much tech disasters, but tech destruction that's happened in our house. We have had uh, Kindles being stamped on by our two-year-old. We have had uh, a TV with, I think I've said a couple of times, a toy hammer thrown at our television and uh, insurance helped sort that out. But anyway, now if you have a smartphone or an iPad, most of us will know that we have a lock function 
on these things. We have to do a passcode. We have to put in some numbers. And uh, if you get the code wrong a number of times, it locks you out for maybe 10 minutes. And you have to wait. And it's, it's really frustrating. Now, dad posted on the internet this week that his iPad, he got to his iPad, hadn't used it in a wee while. And it was locked out. On the screen, it said locked out for 25,536,442 minutes. Now, that equates to just shy of 49 years. It would, it would be the year 2068. And that three-year-old would be 52 years old. Imagine the joy when that day comes. 52, getting to use the iPad again. Fortunately, Apple stepped in and they saved the day and it was, it's all good. But I had a bit of a giggle reading that story. How often... Can we view our relationship with God in the same way? Oh, I've mucked up. I'm locked out. I can't come to God. I've got to wait a little while. And the seemingly endless list of trip-ups only serve to distance the time until we can have access. We think, oh, I'm not, not quite, I can't quite come to God with that. Can I just remind us all this morning that Jesus paid the price? There is no lockout time for us this morning. And this passage has two great reminders of the relationship that we can have and the love that God has for each and every one of us. So there's two parts. First of all, if we look at access to God in verse 17, I just want to read actually verse 15 to 17 of the passage. It says this, on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. I would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? For all nations. As you stepped inside the temple door, the first area you got to was the court of the Gentiles or nations. So this was the only part that non Jews were allowed. If you want to worship God, this is where you came. This was the biggest part. And you had to get through this part to get to the other parts of the temple. So all business operations in the temple were set up here. And it was carnage. It was carnage. And as I was reading this, the picture that I envisaged, uh, and I was going back to an episode of The Apprentice, is like Marrakesh in Morocco, the markets. You know, just that hustle and bustle, the busyness. People everywhere. Animals were being bought and sold. Currencies were being exchanged. Thousands and thousands of people were flooding in. The ancient historian Josephus says, one year, 255,000 lambs were bought, sold, and sacrificed in the temple. Over a quarter of a million lambs. So imagine what you're feeling, what you're hearing, what you're smelling. It would be loud, it would be confusing, it would be quite unsettling maybe. It'd be bustling. And this is where non-Jews were to go to meet God. Opportunity for quiet reflection. And Jesus sees it. And he says, it's wrong. He says, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. But you have made it a den of robbers. So this was a place of big business. Inflated exchange rates as people traveled. And it was lining traders' pockets. It was quite a, a, an important time for traders. They made a lot of money. 
And Jesus was clearing the temple, not of the Gentiles, as many thought would be the plan, but for the Gentiles. But also, this, this passage, this couple of verses, these actions teach into uh, Jesus challenging the sacrificial system at that time completely. So, uh, so the Gentiles could go directly to God in prayer. And this was completely unheard of. So uh, it'd be useful to journey a bit and go right back. And we're going to do that. So firstly, we have the Garden of Eden. We have this sanctuary where the presence of God dwells. This paradise, this place of flourishing and joy. And we have the first human beings, Adam and Eve. And they decide to build their lives on something else, on something other than God. And at that moment, paradise was lost. Adam and Eve were banished. And in Genesis 3, 24, it says this. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword, flashing back and forth to guard the way of the tree of life. So there's a flaming sword which guards the presence of God. Nobody can get back unless they go under the sword. Pay for the wrong. But no one could survive that. And then God establishes a provisional solution for his people, the Israelites. A tabernacle and a temple. In the middle of the temple was the Holy of Holies, where his presence dwelt. It was a small space. It was covered by a veil to shield people from the Shekinah presence of God. And the high priest could enter in once a year. He could enter in once a year, briefly. But at that point, he had to carry a blood sacrifice. There was no way back in to the presence without going under the sword. And then we have Jesus, the Lamb of God, who went under the sword. On the cross, he broke his body. Jesus took the sword for you and for me. And when he died, it says in Matthew 27, 51, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split. At that moment, we all have access. His journey, Jesus' journey to the cross, what he was sharing at that point means no more lockouts, no more veils, no more blockers, no sin too great. We have access. There might be some of us here this morning, we're feeling defeated, we're maybe feeling a bit discounted, Maybe feeling deflated. See how they're all beginning with D's. That was not deliberate, by the way. We may be feeling distant. You're all wondering what the next one is now, aren't you? We may feel flaky just now with our faith. We may feel quite unsure. We may not know why we're here this morning. And wish we were watching Sunday Kitchen on Channel 4. It doesn't matter. Jesus opened the doors of relationship equally for every single one of us. He defeated the sword for you and he defeated the sword for me. Jesus wipes that tally sheet clean. The enemy loves to keep a tally sheet, doesn't it? Oh, remember you did that? Jesus wiped it clean. He wiped it clean. So we have access to God. And then secondly, we get to join in. I was struck when reading the passage at verse 3. Where it says, uh, 
untie, uh, the verse previous is about untying the coat, bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it and we'll send it back here shortly. The Lord needs it. We'll go back to that in a wee second. Uh, back in the day, I used to be, back in the day, I used to be a goalkeeper. I used to uh, play football when I was between the ages of about nine and 13. And I was a pretty good goalkeeper at the time. And I think I was thrown in goals because of my height, uh, not because I was particularly good at it. But I did, I did actually get quite good in time. And I played for my local football team and we were getting thrashed every week. It was into double figures. But some of the, some of the games I would make one or two really good saves and uh, I would do quite well. And then I had the opportunity when I was about 12 years old to train with Dumbarton Football Club. So at that time, they were in the first division. I think they're still in the first division. But that was a pretty big deal, 12-year-old. I'm going to go and train with Dumbarton Football Club. So I went along to some of the training sessions, and I jumped at the chance. And I remember going down to the floodlit stadium in the evening. There was butterflies in my tummy. I was nervous. I was excited. I was dreaming. I was thinking, maybe I'll get to wear his shirt. Maybe I'll be the number one. Maybe I'll be playing on in, in Saturdays. Maybe this, is, maybe this is what I'm meant to do. And I got to do on that evening, it was just the, the 12, 13, 14-year-olds doing uh, like goalkeeping drills, goalkeeping training. And then at the end, we got to join in with the goalkeepers that were there at the football club. We'd done a couple of goalkeeping drills with them. And it was amazing. But I remember being absolutely shattered at the end of it because I was like jumping down, jumping down and then running across and running back. And these guys were machines. You know, they were like well-oiled machines. And it was a great experience. And then I had the offer to join another team. Uh, so a, a manager from an opposing team met me like, in, a, in the town of Dum, in Dumbarton. I was walking with my dad. And he says, Thomas, why don't you join us? And this was a bigger team. I knew there was more opportunities because there was other players that were joining bigger teams. And uh, I was like, all right, okay. They play on Sunday morning. And I was like, oh. And my dad, being a Baptist minister, and me being the good Christian boy, was like, I can't do that. I'm sorry, it's Sunday. And I, I didn't take the opportunity. So I wonder what would have happened if my dad wasn't there. But even to this day, I occasionally, when I'm watching football, go, hmm, that could have been me. That could have been me. Jesus is telling the disciples, go to the village, find a coat, bring it here. Why are you doing this? The Lord needs it and we'll send it back here shortly. You know, I was struck by this because God's great love doesn't only entail we have access to him, but it means we get to join in. We get to join in. That verse, the Lord needs it. And I kind of thought, does he? He doesn't need to use us. He's God. He didn't need to borrow bread and fishes. He didn't need to borrow a coat. He didn't need to borrow a boat to teach in. He is God. But what is so miraculous, what is so brilliant, what is so incredible about God's love is that he wants us to join in. He invites us in. We're part of his plan. Ordinary people and an extraordinary God. We get to join in. We get to play with God. You know that same line I said about the football? Let me just change it a little bit. I remember going to worship God. Butterflies in my tummy. Nervous. Excited, dreaming, thinking what could be. That's what this space is for. That's what this space is for. Are we expectant when we come here? 
Are we realizing how big God is and how little we are? But how often we hold on to the things that he is desperate to take from us. Let's be an expectant people. Let's come to him openly. Let's not hold on when all Jesus is saying, just give it to me. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 9, Paul says, For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. So with our friends, in the office, in the school, in the hospital, at home with our family, in the meeting, with our children, we are co-workers. It's almost like me and God have the t-shirts. We're on the same team. We're in it together. We've got the badges on and he's saying, I'm with you. Don't worry if you muck up. Don't worry if you think it goes to waste. Bring what you have to me and let's see what we can do together. Let's see what we can do together. And then secondly, we have a challenge around our activity. And the first thing I want to look at is let humility be our hallmark. Let humility be our hallmark. Have you ever... uh, seen tales of like really famous people using public transport or have you ever been in London or in a city somewhere and you've been in a bus and you've seen someone famous has anybody anybody done that that happened one person oh dear I'm going to carry on I expected a few more hands but never mind Uh, but our culture doesn't know how to cope with that do we no that can't be that person on Coronation Street I don't even watch Coronation Street that person on Coronation Street is it is that them is that them? It must be a look-like. There's no way they're going to take a train. They, they could buy a train. They could, get there. they could get there by other means. I, my only claim to fame with this is I once seen Gordon Strachan in Costa in Edinburgh. And that, that, that's, that's the only example I have for that. But there is a something of a gap in that moment, isn't there? To what we perceive and expect when we see that person. That doesn't quite compute. And there's something about seeing people that we separate and lift up to a higher level doing something normal. I remember every paper a couple of months ago uh, had the front, and the front pages about Kate Middleton when she went into B&M. I don't know if any of you have seen that, but there was a picture of her in B&M and uh, they were interviewing the checkout operator after. They just like pounced on her check, find out who it was that served her and the minute she got out. And uh, she just said things like, she was really nice, she was getting some stuff for the kids, you know, just normal stuff. And uh, our heart's warm to that in a way. She's just like us. And I kind of like hearing stories like that. You know, with Jesus, there's, there's a gap of what's expected here. Jesus, the King of Kings, the Messiah, triumphant entry on a coat. Not a war horse, not a powerful demonstration, but a humble one. And the Zechariah prophecy uses the Hebrew word ani, A-N-I, which means afflicted or oppressed. And often that that word ani, ani, refers to the poor, a person that is reduced to begging. Jesus comes to Jerusalem as a king who is afflicted. He is a king. He's so clearly a king, but a king who so identifies with our pain and our afflictions, and our needs, that the Messiah comes as a humble king, a humble king. And as I was reading that, it reminds us there's a challenge there for us to live lives for him, 
with as little fanfare as possible. To not look for the trumpet moments, for our name and lights, but to extinguish pride or opportunities to puff ourselves up, to make us look better, and to look out for the cold, to remember Jesus in this act. And you know, our culture and our world love big, loud, and extreme. And Jesus' entry is anything but. A lowly cattle shed and a borrowed tomb. It's the beginnings and the ends of Jesus' life on earth. I wonder where we need to instill humility in our walks. Have we been journeying through our offices on the war horse and Jesus is whispering, did I do that? Did I do that? We to lay that down this morning. What the world expects and what Jesus models is often very, very different. And if we're to look at the moves of God, I've been loving, I've been reading a few books on revival, the Hebridean revival and the Ulster revival, and just struck by the beginnings of those. You know, the Hebridean revival was two elderly women praying. The Ulster revival, it was a group of people, a handful of people give it, doing door-to-door ministry. And they had done all the doors they could. They got to the, the second last door and they shared. And uh, there was somebody in the back room, a young teenager, or a young man in the back room that heard. So it wasn't even directly heard and was overcome with the presence of God. And that's where the revival started. Humble beginnings. Humble beginnings. So to let humility be our hallmark, where do we need to lay down pride this morning? And then the second point is to be all that we're meant to be. My heart breaks at the stories of nearly men. You know, people who nearly got there. And there's loads of sport analogies on that. You think of Tim Henman. You know, for those of us that were in the 90s and early 2000s, Henman Hill, come on, Tim, those shouts. Got to the semi-final one year, but it was just like so close. But he'd never quite made it. And then I think of some of my favorite movies, the Home Alone movies, Macaulay Culkin. You know, just his story. He was one of the most famous child actors, destined for great things. And unfortunately, his life didn't quite go down the route that, that, that was expected or use his talents to full effect. You know, as I, I read this passage, I want to be all that I'm meant to be. I want to, to walk into all that God wants me to. And we have in verse 12 to 14 and 20 to 21 an illustration around a fig tree, just as we bring things to a close. So the day, next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one never eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard him say it. And then if we fast forward 20, it says in the morning as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Now the fig tree in the Middle East, it bore two kinds of fruit. As the leaves were coming in spring, before the figs you had like little nodules, which were really good to eat. So they were a good source of nutrition. You would eat them. 
And if you had a tree that had leaves, but none of those nodules, you knew something was wrong with the tree. It might look okay from a distance, but inside it was decaying. Something was wrong. It wasn't all it was meant to be. It was still a tree, but it wasn't a very healthy one. So there was growth without fruit. And growth without fruit is a sign of decay. And Jesus is teaching this in this passage. The tree isn't doing what it's meant to be doing. People weren't doing what they were supposed to be doing. So the temple, he parallels it to the temple. The temple had loads of stuff going on. But no one was actually praying. It was chaos and not a good kind. You know, we can get busy without becoming all that Jesus wants for us. We can get busy doing what we think are good things, but they're not necessarily God's things. Jesus cleared the temple of that very busyness. And he wants us to remember the price that he paid for us to be all that we're meant to be. There is more to him and more in us to be uncovered. And we must not, we must not seem busy and on board. And there's a challenge around vulnerability in that. We need to get better at opening up. And as a church, we need to be learning how, how to uh, learn how to be better at loving each other through that as well. Psalm 26 verse 2 says, Test me, Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and my mind. You know, as Jesus was heading to the tree, he was hungry. And our city is hungry. Inverness is hungry. Our land is hungry. There is uncertainty. There's poverty. Mental illness is rife. There's family breakdowns everywhere you look. And people are hungry for hope. I want to urge us. Let's make sure we have fruit. It's my prayer that we carry the fruit that we allow Jesus to shine on what's decaying in our lives and to act on that, to bring it to him. That we keep short accounts and we keep growing. And there's more to come for each and every one of us. And I felt that was a word for some of us who maybe feel their tree has had its season. Some of us here thinking, it's down to the other ones now. It's down to the rest of them. No, there is more fruit and we're called to sort the decay. So finally, I just want to uh, say there's a question that needs answered as we bring things to a close. What are we living for? Who are we living for? Rick Warren says, nothing will shape your life more than the commitments you make. Is, your, is our commitment to busyness? Is our commitment to live independently? Or is our commitment to grow? Is our commitment to love each other relentlessly I've been thinking a lot about legacy and what we're doing here in the early days of Inverness Vineyard Church you know it's our, our dream that this church will be here long, before, long beyond any of us are here and that's our dream that in 50, 100 years time there is, there's this light shining in Inverness along with the other many lights that are, are, are shining in Inverness. And, you know, to, for that to happen, we need to get it right now. 
We need to get it right now. It's my heart that as a church, that our declaration is when we pass the baton on to the next generation, that we say the verses in 2 Timothy 4, 7. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. And I have remained faithful. That's, that's our prayer. Why don't we stand?